can be rough. And I think NASCAR in particular can be rough. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here. It's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, likewise. You're saying you, uh, you listened to Matt Tift and you enjoyed that one. I did. I did. I've been enjoying a lot of your episodes. I think it's also always cool when, when we know someone like Matt was in our NASCAR Next class and learning some of his perspectives, especially transitioning away from racing. I think something we've all been going through in some capacity. So it was, it was really cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, as you know, I want to set kind of the background, um, tell the viewer where you grew up, where you were born, what your parents did for a living, kind of give me the childhood. Okay, so the childhood. I'm from New York City, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and um, my parents are two professionals, and I think my dad wanted to race when he was little and wasn't allowed to, and so somewhat lived vicariously through us, but my parents also, they have me, my sister, and my brother, and they were looking for an activity where we could all do something together, and my parents also wanted something where girls would be interacting with boys, since we have to in the real world. I appreciate their progressiveness in that capacity. Mm. And so we started go-karting and there was a track about two hours outside of New York City. It was Oakland Valley Race Park, which Marco Andretti raced there, I think, probably Haraka. So there were a handful of like kind of people who kind of climbed to a certain level that were there. Uh, Santino Ferrucci also, his mm. dad ended up buying the track eventually. And so that was his home track, backyard, I guess. And um, yeah, so that's how I got into go-karting. But I you know, lived in New York and then I went to college at Stanford and then I moved to North Carolina. It's been nine years that I have been living wow. in the South, which is wild. Wow. There's a lot of adult time in a very different culture, but uh, all good. And then, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the off-track stuff. Well, before we go back to the, the childhood stuff, what what has been, or I'm sure there's a lot of big shocks moving to the South. Uh, would you ever move back North? Do you like the South? Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't wait. I, it's not going to happen just yet, but um, the future plans will definitely be to get back to New York City at some point. Um, and then my husband's French, so he eventually wants to go back to France. So that's a long way away, but like I'm learning French, so I'll be ready. Wow. Wow. That'll yeah. be a big jump. Yeah. I don't, I can't, I find that I can't think about that yet because it's a little too overwhelming. Like I'm just starting to get into past tense in speaking. So <laughs> the idea to be a, autonomous independent adult there is a little far-fetched right now but we'll get there eventually wow okay so you start go-kart racing with your brother and sister mm -hmm. and when does it start to click or take off or go okay julie is the one who's fast and winning races yeah so i i remember it took until my seventh race to win in a go-kart it was a little cadet go-kart and um we started national go-kart racing kind of quickly. And so by the time I was 12, I never won a national go-kart championship, but I was on the podium, won races. And so I was doing that. And I think when I was 12 or 13, my parents had read about John Edwards, who raced for Red Bull and then sports cars. And he had gotten into the Skip Barber racing series when he was 12. And so my parents being competitive were like, ah, if this child can do it, our child can do it. And, um, and I loved it. And, you know, every year my parents asked me, did I still want to dedicate a lot of time? Did I want to miss friends' birthdays? Did I want to, you know, focus on it? And I did. So started racing in that, won a championship when I was 14. And I think that was like, all right, she's not just good at go-karting. She's good at cars. Um, and that was Formula Cars. And did that for a little bit. And then switched over to oval racing when I was 16. Did a lot of part-time racing in the Ford Focus midgets, which are those funky, they're kind of funky, like the sprint cars. So like funky, oh, yeah, yeah, high yeah, center yeah. of gravity yeah open wheel on asphalt, not on dirt. Right. Um, what was, I never did any of the Skip Barber stuff, but I, like a lot of people came out of that. Um, and I remember like I did the, the Bridgestone thing at, at Mostport. I think I was, yeah, 13 or 14. And it was, no, it was, yeah, it was probably 12, I guess. And uh, it was a big jump. It was like, oh shit, I'm in a full size car here. And, but, you know, it's so similar to go-karts that you were probably quick right away in the Skip Barber stuff, no? No, I wasn't. Okay. Well, also, so first part, so one thing that was that I'll never forget is that, you know, in go-karts, when you get onto the straightaway, in order to kind of increase the 
ascent of your RPMs, a lot of people will kind of jump out of their seat to to get the the axle lighter and get the wheel spinning. I will never forget at Lime Rock Park coming down on the last corner and trying to like jump in my seat just out of instinct of getting onto a straightaway. And, you know, I was a very small 13 year old and like strapped in really tight with this massive like poured car seat that went completely underneath me. Like I needed a lot of assistance and it just like ripped at my collarbones and it was awful. So um, no, but the story I've become comfortable telling is that my first Skip Barber race after doing the three day racing school and the two day racing school was at Lime Rock in October in the rain. And for those who haven't been on Lime Rock, it was at least extremely treacherous in the rain and really slippery. And I just remember that Parker Kligerman was racing that race and he won the race and he lapped me twice in the rain. Ooh. And it was so, I don't, I mean, I wasn't even like that ashamed of myself. I was just so terrified the whole time I was on track because it was so different to go fast in a heavy car on a slippery surface. Um, but I realized I had some work to do. So the next year I came back and won my next race and then won the championship. So just needed that humble beginning to give the, give myself the kick in the ass that I needed. Right. Right. So why did stock car racing happen from that trajectory? That's like an IndyCar or formula one trajectory. Yeah. So after Skip Barber, I was 15. And at that time, there were a really limited number of racing series, formula car racing series that a 15 year old could do. Mm. And we did formula BMW USA, which doesn't exist anymore. But they, you know, we were the support race for F1 in Montreal and for Indy when they raced there. And, um, you know, race at a bunch of really cool tracks, but it was really expensive. My parents didn't have the budget to be on a really good team. Um, and when we got done with that year and we're kind of not super happy with how much money was spent and like the quality that we got, cause like all three, my two other teammates and I had all won a championship the year before and we were constantly at the back. Um, so I think my parents and I got to learn more about the business side of racing and just like what goes into it. And it was cheaper to go oval racing, got a lot more racing in. And mm. it was something that, I think Lynn St. James had introduced me to Bob East who runs the the midgets. And so I was able to race for him in Indiana and like leave school on a Tuesday night and race on Wednesday and then fly back. And um, so it was kind of a mix of cost and just frequency and knowing that we were in the States. Um, I think my parents never loved the idea of helping me towards IndyCar, just being on ovals in an open wheel car. I think they always thought was a little riskier than they necessarily needed to be. Um, and then, so I just started learning about that and it allowed for a lot of, a lot of part-time racing throughout high school and college, which is what I ended up doing. Right. So you ran a, uh, ran a late model. And during that time, how are you conceptualizing racing? Is it like, Hey, this is something I want to, you know, pursue as long as I can, or is it, Oh no, I, I want to race cup. I want to make a living at it. That's a great question. I think I always knew that I wanted to keep pursuing racing and try to make a living. Like it really didn't really sink in that that wouldn't happen until like after the 2020 season, which I think is a little naivete on my part. And just also, you know, working so hard for a dream that you're trying to make happen that you've dedicated like your whole life to. Um, but no, so I also always knew that my parents were limited in the funding that they could provide. And so I always spent a bunch of time on the business side and I knew I wanted to go to school. I knew I wanted I knew that no matter what, even if I made it to the highest levels of racing, I would probably stop by my mid thirties at some point. Cause you know, I do want a family eventually, right? Like do I knew that there was going to be an end. Um, and so I was interested in other stuff, but yeah, I think by the time I graduated, like I went through college trying to learn as much as I could about as many things as I could, that I could then apply to racing, building a brand, figuring out how to make a living that would allow me to keep sponsorship hunting and all that stuff. And I knew that I was always going to move to Charlotte. Right. Which I gotta say, after being in the Bay Area for four years in like the most perfect weather and like at a great school and everything, I was like, oh, the South Charlotte, okay, it's a jump. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. California has the best weather in the world. It really does. There might so, be other problems with it, but it does have really beautiful weather and like yeah. scenery. Yeah, exactly. You're gonna make you're gonna make the trade maybe uh, for for North Carolina as far as some things there as far as weather and culture, but um, so during school, what did you take at school and university if you're Canadian, college, I guess, if you're American? 
That's right. Those yeah. cultural differences. Um, so I studied something called science, technology, and society. It was really interdisciplinary. It meant that I took I took a technical route and I got a Bachelor of Science, but it was a lot of like entry and second level classes and a lot of different subjects. So everything from you know, communications and history and English classes to computer science and mechanical engineering design. And I learned I was not good at natural sciences. So I took minimal class of those, but it really just allowed me to follow my curiosities. And, you know, like I took one of my favorite classes was a graphic novel course. So like comic books and like full on books that are written with graphics. And it was just so cool. And to see how the words and the images mix. So I've always enjoyed learning and all of that. So it was a pretty perfect way to go through. And I knew I didn't want to do labs. I knew I didn't want to do that. I, I've never been a straight A student. So I also knew that there were limitations academically and, um, but I always worked hard. So yeah, that's what I did. So you've already made this decision before you graduate college that you're moving to North Carolina. Had you already, and and then, you know, the path to the beginning path to NASCAR is, is the K&N series. Had you already kind of set up that, that K&N deal before you, you moved? No. So I had known, like I had started and I look back and I kind of not cringe cause I was learning, but like look at some of the sponsorship pitches I did while trying to pitch K&N. Cause I started doing that in college and was not successful at it, but um, I graduated when I graduated, I was still racing some legends cars, which were super fun. And they do yeah. that in you know charlotte motor speedway a lot and some of the little short tracks in the charlotte area and then i raced the limited late models with lee and won that championship and when i did that that was kind of that was a nice boost in terms of like establishing myself within the nascar audience of at least knowing how to race and be competitive and put together a full season and then um the year after that i had worked with bill McAnally a little bit while I was in college running late models, but then we were able to do the, the K&N West. I was the fourth car assigned to the 2016 season. Right. And how does that deal work? Like I remember you had like a million sponsors on your suit and Toyota on the car and different sponsors. Like how, like if you don't mind, like take me through the inner workings of that deal with, with Bill. It was still majority pay to play at that point. And right. I think, you know, with some of the drivers, like with Todd there and Riley there and Chris might've been a little different, but um, I think for the most part, we were mostly pay to play and there were some sponsor obligations and there was some help, but it was still a parental duty. Sure. Did you find any of your own money that season? I did, but not through traditional sponsorship. I did through different like branded partnerships and I had started my public speaking, my keynote speaking career at that point. And so some of that money I was able to put towards it, but, um, it was, it was crazy how much money was being thrown at so many young drivers. And like, you know, cause we're about the same age. Like I was old in that right, group, yeah. like Todd Gilliland, I think was 16 at the time. And I was 23 or 24, whatever it was. And, um, but like there were people flying private to the tracks, like, yeah. like, ah, I'm doing my connection flight through Seattle to get to Spokane. Like, woohoo. Yeah, absolutely. So you're living in Charlotte. You now know, like we did that NASCAR next kind of deal. And I guess, I guess you were kind of in it living there. Uh, I didn't really know much about it and learned a lot during that year, but you saw that the steps were, okay, I need to, if I'm going to do this, I now need a truck ride next year and an Xfinity ride a year or two later and a cup ride, however many years after that. How far did you go down that road? And then where did that kind of stall out? Yeah. So we obviously have that perfect plan of how it's going to work. And for the second year of K&N, um, it was going to be more expensive to go back to Bill and quite honestly, knowing that Todd was there and his dad was so involved, like I thought it would be hard to have a fair chance on the team. Um, I think that's fair to say. And so we're looking around and um, we had the sunrise deal and that whole year was really bad. And like Michael Self was my teammate and we both just were pretty bad for most of the season. And it was a very weird season. So that was a little disheartening that after having momentum of having gotten fourth in the K&N points, like for reference, I like to say is like I was one place behind Noah Gregson and yeah. it was his second year. And so it was pretty disheartening to have such a terrible year with so many mechanical failures and weird things happening. But after that, my parents had like fully pulled out of 
funding. And so, you know, I was able to get some funding to run a handful of Pinty series at that level. And those were, you know, ran for Joey and, you know, got, got seat time, but everyone knew it was not like a top tier car. And that was probably the first like really hard time where it's like, okay, I clearly don't have the budget. I can't keep going. And what was disappointing was that, you know, before Brad Kozlowski Racing had shut down, we were talking with them and they were one of the teams that was providing a lot of funding for drivers to go racing. And like Daniel Hemrick went through there and everything. So when they shut down, it was also like, ooh, double whammy, like kind of a lot of stuff is not panning out the way it could have, knowing it wasn't necessarily going to. But um, so after that, yeah, 2018, 2019 were partial seasons in the Pinty series, which it was cool to race up there. Um, didn't, you know, wasn't the best results ever. And, you know, being a part-time driver is always a little challenging. But once I realized that I was going to be able to fund the Euro NASCAR series for a year in 2020, I was stoked. So I was like, oh my God, we're going full-time racing again. We're going to be on a great team. Back to road course racing, which I love. And then the pandemic happened. So that still raced there, but it was very truncated. It was a very challenging season to live there for three months um, because because travel was so funky. Once I flew over there, I was like, I got to stay in Europe. Like, we don't oh. know what's going to happen. So I ended up living with my my now husband's French family that does not speak English for three months. And he couldn't go there because he was on visa and he couldn't get back into the States if he left. So it was a very challenging but fun year but after that um you know in in 2021 they didn't that team didn't race again and that was kind of where i was like ah all right my i think my career is officially dwindling down sure sure what was the uh the nascar euro series like i'm always curious i'm always like oh should i i want to i want to race brands hatch or something for me, I look back and when I think of like what the most fun racing has been, it's up there on on being really great. Because I also, one thing I never loved about stock cars on a road course in the US or in Canada is that our cars are set up, the K&N, Xfinity, whatever it is, to have a lot of body roll. And so it kind of feels that way. It feels like the whole car just like lops over when you're going through a corner. And I never felt like, I never felt super confident with that kind of characteristic. And so the Euro NASCAR car car is really stiff and it's also a little bit lighter so it just feels nimble and really reactive and so i thought it was a lot of fun they also have a pretty strict like no contact policy if you make avoidable contact you get penalized and so it means that you're really forced to be really good at your racecraft. and i've always liked that better i don't know if it's because i started in open wheel stuff but i kind of feel like anyone can knock someone out of the way for the win but to have to prove that you can get past cleanly it just made for really enjoyable and really competitive racing. So if you can do it, I highly recommend it is a fun series. Okay. Yeah. Alon and I always talk about trading rides for a race. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. If that would no, be, it I, was great. It was, okay. it was, it was really cool. I think the whole, I mean, we didn't get to experience the atmosphere of the fans, but they seem really cool because they were completely closed off and, and the garage really, had strict protocols for COVID. Um, so socially, I didn't get a sense of the field, but it, I've heard it's fantastic. Right. So during during this whole, your whole racing career, you are keynote speaking. How did, like, how did that come about? Was it one event that you were invited to and you went, oh, I, I kind of like this? Yeah, basically. So when I was at Stanford, they asked me to give a talk during their TEDx event. So Stanford had every year had a TEDx Stanford event. Um, they asked me when I was a junior, but I couldn't do it because the survivor live taping of the finale for the season that I had been on was filming. So I had to ask if they would, they would have me the following year. And they said, maybe and I was crossing my fingers and I got to work with a communications co coach that they brought in. So I got to get really dedicated time to learn how to read my audience and tell a story and create this narrative arc. And I got on stage and I was so nervous. My talk was, I had practiced it at 12 minutes every time and I get on stage and it was eight and a half minutes. I just spoke so quickly, but I spoke clearly. I delivered everything I was supposed to. I made people laugh, which is an incredibly intoxicating feeling when you yeah. make a whole audience laugh. And I also, I knew that I had sparked some conversations between people and that it was the content I was delivering was interesting. And I was like, ah, well, I know that you can get paid doing this. And I now have the tools to know how to put together a good story. 
And so I left college knowing like, I'm going to try to see if I can make a living this way. Cause you know, even this year I've had about 14 gigs and it just means that I have a lot of other time to do stuff. And, um, you know, it was a process to build it up to a sustainable career, but yeah, I, I, about a year after graduating, I pitched myself for my first speaking event. I just Googled women's leadership conferences and I sent my really pretty packaged TEDx talk and someone, someone wanted to hire me pretty quickly. So it, I got a little bit lucky with that. Right. Right. That's great. Uh, let's go back to Survivor. How did you end up on Survivor? So I applied just like everyone else thinking like, you know, again, throughout college, I always thought like, how can I do stuff that helps my racing career, helps my publicity, which I've learned it's not helped that much, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> but I, um, I applied and, you know, I happened to fit some brief that I guess they were looking for and it was so hard and I didn't know until like two weeks before having to fly to the Philippines that I had made it. Um, and it was, you know, the first thing people ask is, is it real? And it is a hundred percent miserably real. And, mm. um, it, I don't think, I think they're on season 45 or something now. And it, it wouldn't make it this far if it was scripted. And, um, I was convinced that we would get water bottles at some point to hydrate and we don't, I got a terrible, terrible sunburn on my well, on my whole body but really on my face like where i could see the blister oh, like geez. right underneath my eye it was awful and um yeah no it was very cool very challenging i'll for i'm a little competitive and will forever be bitter that it was half people who had played before half new people because that's just so unfair right. but it was great it was great hmm. would you do it again i have applied several times to do it okay. again and I have been hardcore ignored every time. Right, didn't just, make enough of a splash. Oh no, no, I got I was I got such the boring edit. Like I got nervous because you're playing for a million dollars, and I was aware that by being a Stanford student and from New York and being a race car driver, like there's a certain air of pretentiousness that could come along with that. And I was like, well, why if I play as well as like a single parent or something, would they give me a million dollars? So I kind of concealed some stuff about myself, and then realize that it's hard to contribute to a conversation if you're worried about worried about not blowing your cover that you've been deceiving people and the mm. whole game is deception and i was the youngest person there i was 20 years old and everyone was miserable like it's just they they find really awful people to be on that show and so i just like i was like this isn't going well i don't yeah. like anyone and then i got a pretty pretty searing uh boring edit so yeah, that's yeah. the way it goes. You're at the mercy of the editors. Yeah. The shows. I will say I don't feel like – I feel like they make people caricatures of themselves, but I don't feel like anything was made up right. from what I know of anyone else. It's like what you give. And some people know how to give the producer stuff that they can work with really well. Mm. And some of us do not. Right. And then we, we learn the hard way in front of 9 million people. Right. So you did uh, – was it this past season you ran – the one or two Xfinity races, you raced Daytona? Yeah, no, I did not race Daytona. I raced okay. Homestead. But yeah, Homestead. I raced, um, I was able to get real sponsorship to go run two Xfinity races, which I was very proud of myself. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing, like being able to get the funding, uh, working with the team, making both the races. Um, so it was at New Hampshire, which I had raced at a few times in Pinty's and in K&N, and every time was absolutely horrible. And honestly, the Xfinity race ended up being horrible because Allgaier put me in the wall. But um, but it was really cool. Made it in. I say I've never been so proud of qualifying 32nd in my life. But but dude, it's it's terrifying to go out because like you get no practice, right? It's 20 right. minutes of practice, and then you have one lap to qualify. And I I'm so glad I didn't know how hard it was going to be because it like and I hadn't raced in a little while. But luckily, I had the confidence. But it is so hard and like you pull out for practice and like everyone's already full speed when I pull out. It's like, I don't even know where my break point is. Like I kind of have an idea and then I know I have to get deeper and it was really, really hard. Um, Homestead was a lot easier as a track, although it was hard to get up by the wall. I found that really, really challenging. Sure. Um, physically like driving a mile and a half was so much easier because you have these long straightaways where you're just like, all right, deep breath. We got this. And none of the turns are super tight. So in some ways that felt 
it felt like a much shorter race than like the half race I ran at New Hampshire. Right, right. New, yeah, I can't imagine jumping in that series with no practice. Like, it'd be so hard. Did you did you prepare on a simulator? I did prepare on a simulator. I watched a lot of videos. I looked at data. I talked with the team a lot. I we had done a test day at Motor Mile, which Motor Mile is a 0.4 mile pretty banked track and New Hampshire is a one mile flat track. So very different, very, yeah. very different. Um, and the test day got cut a little short, but at least I knew kind of what the car felt like. Um, but yeah, I did as much prep as I could, but it clearly like you can always do more. And, and I, I was stuck because I had, I was only licensed for up to a mile. So that was really the only track that they said that I could race on and I got approved for a mile and a half. And then after Homestead approved for super speedways, which I don't personally have any strong desire to get on a super speedway. If I'm honest, like it's, it seems really gnarly. That's, that's the only uh, other than like, um, you know, racing a truck at Coda or Xfinity car at Coda. That's what I want to do. I'd, I'd want to go run Talladega in a truck, you know, just, drafting ballsier than i am <laughs> holding it flat out that's probably the only thing stopping me though is the prospect of ending up you know in the grandstands yeah it's like i know that it's safe like I, I objectively know that it's pretty safe and people have had some really rough crashes and walk away but i don't know if it's like being in my 30s and like mm, you know what that's it's too much but yeah so what have you done in the national series because you've done some trucks right just uh Oh, just the trucks at Mostport. I've run three of those. Um, I hope they come back. Uh, I don't think I figured it out until after my last race there. Um, just how different those radial tires are and the truck arms, you know, compared to the Pinty's car. It's like so you've got to sure. drive it in slow and just get off the corner. Whereas the Pinty's car, you can drive it in like a formula car and, you know, just correct. But those radial tires, like you lose grip and you're out of it. You've got, yeah. you've got no grip for the whole corner. Um, and then I did the, I did the cup race with, um, that's right at the Glen. Uh, and that was like, that was pretty fun. Uh, didn't get practice cause the battery fell out. I was oh. like, Oh, I don't, I don't need practice anyways. Uh, I know how to turn left and right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was really cool. I, you know, any of those shots you get at it, you like, you lose sleep for a week. Like you get PTSD. You're like, oh, I, I could have done so many things differently. Right. Oh yeah. 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 But yeah. So Watkins Glen is one track that I've not been on. Cause when Skip Barber raced there, I was under the, I think the minimum age was 18 at the time. So mm. I couldn't race there, but yeah, my bucket list items. And like, I don't consider myself retired. I'm just not pursuing racing full time, but still want to get on Laguna Seca, still want to get on Watkins Glen. Um, I think those are the big ones that I have yet to, yet to get on. Yeah. Do you have bucket list items? <sighs> bucket list items. I want to do some sports car racing. I want to run Daytona. That too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Le Mans would be cool, but I think Daytona is more, um, more attainable. Yeah. And, uh, there's have so many tracks. Have you done any sports car racing? Um, that's a good question. Not really. No, yeah. I love the, I love watching the, uh, the MX five series. I mm, think that's mm -hmm. badass. Um, but yeah, like Daytona and then all these tracks that I haven't raced on, like, you know, Lime Rock, VIR, Road America, like those, you know, mid Ohio, I, I need, I need to run those tracks before I'm 40. You do. Yeah. You do. Yeah, Lime Rock's super special. VIR was where I got my first Skippy win, and I got to then do it in a Legends car, which that was fun. We did mm. the South course in a Legends car. Um, I did a test day in a late model on the North course. I mean, it's just such a cool track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, can we dive into a little bit of the content of your keynote stuff? I assume yeah. you rely a little bit on your racing and you want to keep racing to be, you know, have fresh, uh, fresh stories and fresh, fresh, uh, you know, that you are still a race car driver for your keynote talks, right? Yeah, so that's an interesting, yes, like theoretically, that's what I've always thought about. Um what my agent thinks is that like the content stands on its own 
pretty mm. well. And so, and a lot of the stories, so for background, like I definitely fall under the general motivation, inspiration, entertainment category. So if a company or an association, they have just like an opening keynote that's just meant to pump people up a lot. That's what I'll get hired for, not a technical right. discussion. And so um, I like my themes revolve around taking ownership or perseverance or like leadership. That's a big one. And I think the team dynamic of racing is with the driver, especially is like a really prime way to talk about leadership and motivating a team and everything. But I also talk about like embracing discomfort and I'll talk about male allies. I'll, I have a more women's focused talk about more specific gendered things that I've gone through. And a lot of the stories really are rooted in go-karting and early days of racing cars because they're just these big formative lessons that I learned. Um, but I also, I'm working on like how to, you know, I watch, I do enjoy a lot of stand-up comedians. And so seeing how they kind of engage an audience and their body language and how they change their tone a little bit, or how you almost like flirt with the audience a little bit with how you're delivering your content, like learning how to do that, I think makes the, makes the content help stand alone, as I said, without being an active racer. And so I'll always be a race car. I'll always be, have two championships, but, um, I don't necessarily think that I need to stay active to keep doing that because the storytelling I've learned, it's something that I'm getting kind of good at. So, which is really reassuring to have. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What are your thoughts on, uh, I guess the, you know, the W series, the women's series in racing and just, and you probably know better than I do. There's not a whole lot of sports where men, men and women compete together. Yeah. Yeah. So, I will be the first to admit that when the W series was announced, I was really not a supporter of it. I, I love that racing is co-ed. I love that, you know, it's one of the few competitive arenas where men and women can more or less compete equally. And do I think that formula one might be a little hard for some women, especially smaller women? Yeah, I do. I think that's such a high level of physical strength and sheer downforce that you're dealing with. I'm sure women could do it, mm -hmm. but, um, Besides that, like in a stock car, I, I think there's no real advantage to being a guy over being a woman. And so anyway, I think it's fair. And I was I was adamantly against it until someone and I forget who it was. They made the point that at least by showcasing a bunch of women racing, you are normalizing having a lot of women competing in one race and that for optics and for normalizing that, that that could be really good. And so I totally get that argument. Um, and I think if it's a means to an end to help women participate more. I think that that's great. I think where you get in trouble is what happened that, you know, the business model wasn't sustainable and it didn't work out. And optics could be that there wasn't enough support for people don't want to watch women in racing or whatever it is. And I think we're seeing that a lot of sport women's sports do have a big audience and it's about helping support it and growing. So at the end of the day, mixed, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm excited to see where F1 Academy goes and the fact that they're built in with Liberty Media and Formula One and they're tying in the teams. Um, I'm intrigued to see it, but I think, as you know, because racing's so expensive, you have that barrier anyway. And so then to have other barriers just makes it that much harder. Um, but I'm, I'd love to be proven wrong that it's a great thing to do so that we can get more women in racing because that is something I'm passionate about. Um, and we'll see. We will see it. I think they just announced that for the Coda race for F1 Academy that the ESPN is going to be broadcasting it. So I think that's pretty cool. major. Like I think it was announced today. And so we'll see. We'll yeah. See. Why do you think there are so few women in racing? I think it's, I'm sure there are a bunch of reasons. I think one, if you just look at the resources, if a family can put resources towards one kid to go racing, I think most parents will just assume that the boy wants to do it or that right. the boy might show more interest. I really believe in the sentiment, like if she can see it, she can be it. And it's amazing throughout my career, how many girls just didn't know that girls could race because they don't even see it. So I think there's that kind of just for kids, at least knowing what's out there. Um, I think also it can be a pretty uncomfortable culture to be in, like being the other in any culture is sure. tough. And, you know, I think I've, I think I've had a pretty decent experience overall, but I still have been deeply uncomfortable at times. I've had to, 
you know, lean on humor and trying to relate to people. And it's just like, it can be rough. And I think NASCAR in particular can be rough. Um, but then I saw it in the Euro series too, and it's a different flavor of weird, but um, you know, it just, it, you can be uncomfortable and, um, and yeah. And, and what I find is kind of tough. And I see this with a lot of women in racing is that like, you kind of get pigeonholed into either like the attractive and then not a good racer or yeah. like a good racer. And then people comment on like not being attractive. And it's like, it's not exclusively, but it's like you're pigeonholed into these two things. And it's like, well, neither is really a recipe for success. And so I don't know, there are little things. I think everyone's experience is different, but I think culturally, I think financially, I think, I think also now getting a little bit older, realizing like biological timelines. And especially if you're someone who expects to have kids when you're in your twenties, that makes it hard to keep being a race car driver. So I think there's some element of all of that. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. An interesting thought and, and it averages mean nothing for the individual, right? Um, I, I know a guy who was on, um, on the board for sports Canada and uh, he knows nothing about racing. And he was asking me about, uh, you know, are there, are there girls in, in racing? I, you know, gave him the, the correct answer, very few. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, well, is it, is it separated? Because it should be. And I go, well, what do you mean? Why? He's like, well, I just went through all this data. And, you know, even darts is separated by gender. Because mm -hmm. on average, men have better hand-eye coordination. And I, I never thought of it like that. But... You know, all of these averages, again, when you're looking at when you're looking at, you know, elite sports mean nothing for the individual, you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. And and, you know, what's also interesting is that, you know, especially as we've seen more attempts at women, a gendered racing series is like because of how much goes into them, like upstarting a new division oh. or a whole like it's not going to happen but also there's just we still like there's still not enough women at the grassroots level to comprise a full series um and and i think what makes racing harder also is that it's so inaccessible to a lot of people like you know this like you grow up and you learn how to play basketball you learn how to play baseball you learn how to run track you learn how to throw darts like whatever it might be yeah and you get a sense of what that's like but like if you're living in a city or if you're living in a random place that doesn't have a racetrack nearby or go-karting your parents aren't taking you to it like there's no way to kind of know and so it, it you're already having a smaller potential talent pool for racing just because it is inaccessible for sure. For sure. And I think interest plays into that, too. Um, you know, if you look at, say, I think a lot of people in the future will come to racing through sim the simulator. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, on average, meaning nothing for the individual, but on average, boys play video games at an, a staggering rate in comparison to girls. Yeah. And, I, you know, um, but the simulator is a great equalizer for someone who doesn't have the funding and they can, it's, you know, they can go and hone their craft and try and get an opportunity and get a ride. We've seen it happen a few mm -hmm. times. Right? Yeah, totally. And I think like with something, with anything like, or with something like simulator work, I totally agree that like the technology and the being able to participate is an equalizer but we've seen that like any kind of online chat room or anything that's oh. especially mailed like discord is awful. <laughs> and, right. um, and you know, I have plenty of women who I know, especially like when I was dabbling in the web three space and just learning about NFTs and blockchain and everything. I had a lot of women who told me that they joined and just had like a gender neutral name or just their initials or whatever. And people just assumed that they were men. And then when they, when other women joined or something like it was, awful so again like it is an equalizer but part of the reason a lot of girls don't get into video games is also because it's a really oh scary yeah and dangerous place so it just sucks that like nothing operates in a silo and like it all kind of comes together that way but but yeah simulators are huge and i know there's a little bit of an effort especially with some european-based groups to try to encourage more girls to get into simulator work and um as a way to get that quote-unquote seat time um which I've never done a lot of. I've, I've never played video games growing up, um, but it's a totally different feel. Yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, 
I don't put a whole lot in the simulator, but um, you know, I guess it works for some people. So you've uh, you've started a podcast now. What was the impetus for that? I did. So if I'm honest, with Julia Landauer came out of wanting to have additional content after the keynotes. Um, a bunch of people in my audience are like, "Oh, have you written a book? Oh, like, can we see more of you?" And I'm I'll be the first to admit I'm not fantastic at social media and I don't love content creation in that capacity, but um, oral storytelling is something that I do really like. And so mm. it's been a experimental period and kind of learning what sticks, what, what people like. I think, I think I know how I want to do my second season a little differently, um, but I basically, it's a lot of solo podcasts talking about themes that could naturally complement my keynote themes. And then I've started incorporating guests which is a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to shift some things for next season to make it a little more informal, conversational, a little more like, I feel like I feel better with when I'm either a guest on a podcast or interviewing and it's more of that conversation. So how do I translate that into an individual setting? You know? Right. Right. Are you, uh, do you have designs on writing a book? Oh, that's a great question. I think I have the content to do. I think that right now I could have something that would be differentiated enough. No. And I don't love writing enough, I think. And I'm not quite ready to invest in a ghostwriter. But yeah, people ask that. I don't know. It's I feel like a lot of people or athletes or public figures in some capacity like want to have that that thing, that token book that they've written. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if it's in my immediate future. Hmm. What about you? Would you write a book? Uh, probably the same answer. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One day, maybe. Uh, writing seems miserable. Yeah. I would love to do a children's book. Okay. If I'm honest. Like, I would love to do, again, because I love that graphic novel class that I took so much, even though I'm not an artist and I don't, I'm not good at drawing, I don't enjoy drawing or anything, to work with an artist to kind of write a children's story that has that visual component I think would be really fun but I'm not gonna do that just yet right you gotta wait till you have kids I feel like you know I even tried like because I thought about it for a while and I bought a bunch of children's books to read through them and I clearly don't have the flow yet of like how to write for a certain age so right. yeah maybe that's a, a later thing I guess you're you guys have a bunch of children's books too right are you yeah yeah I read a I read children's books every night Dr. Seuss oh. is good Anything that you can kind of sing songy is good. The rhyming sing songy, I've, I've realized how important that is and how not naturally talented I am at that. <laughs> so. Right, right. My buddy wrote a, uh, wrote a children's book. He's got two kids, and it's like uh, the ABCs of hockey. A is for whatever, Z is for Zamboni mm. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah oh, that's, that's smart. Yeah, yeah, and I've always thought, like, how could I incorporate racing into something? And I'm just not sure yet. But it right. would be fun, fun down the road. So I listened to a bunch of your podcasts. I was driving around Southern Ontario this morning. Um, I really enjoyed your Heroes podcast. Mm. And yeah. uh, I love the uh, why you, why Paul Newman is one of your heroes. And yeah. I, I think you and I are probably similar in that, um, you know, not solely pursuing racing, but just following what your interests are and trying you know your best to be a renaissance man or woman yeah i mean i i maybe i've always romanticized him but yeah like he the fact that he was an actor and pursued that and had a really dedicated family life and pursued racing and then charitable work is like it was an early introduction that you don't have to fit yourself in one box and i've never felt like i fit in one box especially like being a new yorker in racing being a woman in racing like all this stuff being a stanford student who did not want to go into tech or finance and was going to move to charlotte right like never really fit in the box and so that mindset of like okay we're going to do what we want i just really appreciated that and done with class and, and style and so i'm glad you like that but i think it goes back to again i know that i texted you this but with, I think it was Matt's episode where talking about transitioning from pursuing something professionally to going at it as an enthusiast, you had mentioned that being an enthusiast has longevity. And when you said that, I was just like, oh my God, that is so brilliant. That is such a nice like shift to think about it, especially when it's something you've been pursuing for a while, but you're right. Like you can be a very accomplished and 
you know, masterful enthusiast in whatever you're doing. And so I love that. So thank you. That was a big pick me up that I didn't know I needed. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you go to any local short track and there's a guy there who's dominating. There's however many scratch golfers out at courses who are, you know, putting in as much time as anyone. And, you know, they're just playing with their buddies on the weekend and getting the same enjoyment out of it, really. Um, yeah. You know, um, I'm sure you and I are the same way in that it's, you know, it's amazing and it feels so good to put together a deal that the sponsors paid for everything. You're competing like that's that's an aspect that you don't get as a simple enthusiast. But, um, yeah, the enthusiast thing, like you can do it forever. And I think that's probably, um, you know, Paul, like going back to Paul Newman, like he raced Trans Am till he was 82. Right. Like that is, you know, he's he was truly an enthusiast when he wasn't a professional anymore and and probably started when he was 50 right as an as an enthusiast yeah well and I think in that kind of like when thinking because I too also want to get in sports cars and see what that's like and to go racing for fun again just purely for fun um you know focus on kind of next phase of my career a little bit and get a little more money saved up to make that a little more attainable but like I can totally do that later. And even like, you know, we've, we've picked up playing tennis and have dedicated to my husband and I to learning skills and how to do it properly and working with our friends and we're going to join a class and can be really competitive with each other there. And you just, you can keep building and keep getting better and keep improving. And especially I like having a competitive outlet. So, and we're, we're well matched. We have different strengths and weaknesses that allow us to play a game together pretty well. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah. That's good. The other podcast I enjoyed of yours, um, and it like it really hit home with me as well, is being a, like a recovering um, external validation junkie. Right. Um, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, especially, you know, being having like a bunch of successes as a young kid and those successes being praised. I think it was Andrew Huberman, his podcast, um, talking about how important it is to praise kids on their effort as opposed to their results. Um, I think I listened to the same one. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like, oof, I, you know, have been paralyzed of, you know, from trying, from trying new things because you're not going to succeed at it right away. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's that also. And I think it's also, it becomes kind of humbling. Like for me, what I realize is like throughout, like right around NASCAR next. So 2016, 2017, 2018, like if I was listening to a podcast and I thought I would be a good fit for it, I would pitch and I almost got all of the ones that I wanted to do, like these big podcasts. And then like over the last couple of years where it's like, shifting the focus, like having new podcasts that come out and trying to pitch myself or having my agent pitch me. And like, there was no traction. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm like, I'm not, a, I'm not anymore. Like this yeah. is really sad. And, um, and, and I, it, it extended back to being in school also, because being the race car driver in school, like for any class that you had to apply to, I put something about race car driving and I pretty much got all the classes I wanted. And um, I just realized like how much of a mind it was to realize like, okay, you're not going to get everything that you want. And even if you think that it's a perfect fit, it's not going to work. So yeah, it was super humbling and coming to terms with that and start trying to be more present and appreciative of what's, what I do have. It's a, it's been a really interesting growing few years, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a process. What, uh, so what does the future hold for you for racing? Are you still trying to pitch, uh, the odd race here and there? I'm not pitching so much, but through a few relationships I have, like especially in the Euro series, you know, there have been some discussions about potentially going over and doing a one-off. I don't think it's going to happen this year, but I'm not entirely sure. We talk about buying a go-kart and trying to just like have a nice two-stroke go-kart up at go or Trackhouse Motorplex now. Um, ben and I are not radically different in waist size, so I think we can share a seat pretty comfortably and um, do that. But I'm not entirely sure for racing. I might, you know, I, people have approached about some kind of coaching with some specific programs, which maybe, I'm not sure. But we'll see. I've got a few things that I'm working on that hopefully will come to fruition racing adjacent i would say okay. which i'm excited for Can't you should really... get a go-kart i'm gonna do a uh, shifter race at most port two weekends oh, from now 
Oh, nice. Yeah. I've yeah. only driven a shifter cart once, and it was so powerful and so much torque and so fast. Yeah, I'm super nervous. I've raced an 80 a bunch, but uh, yeah, I've driven a 125 once, and now I'm in a race. So. Oh, wow. Have so much yeah. fun. Yeah. How long is the race? Is it like an uh, endurance race or is it a sprint race? No, it's a sprint race, thank God, but it'll be an <laughs> endurance race for me. I think it'll be like 16 laps and I'm going to be falling out of the seat. Dude, it's tough. So one of the silver linings of not actively pursuing racing, like I still work out regularly and I still stay fit, but now I just work out to be healthy, not to be actively strong to be able to withstand the heat of a NASCAR stock car. And a little while ago, there was a thought that I might go do a race and I was like, oh shit, I got to start exercising again and I did like a week of my more normal racing workouts and I was so sore like getting out of bed every morning was just absolutely terrible so yeah it's getting old sucks yep yep well I I appreciate you coming on um and I ask at the end of of the podcast I ask uh, a question for uh for the guests for some advice so what advice and you can you can spin it and you know expand on it if you want um i guess advice for young women uh pursuing either motorsports or just a male dominated sport or career great question one bit of advice that i would have that i know that there's research that women don't do this as much is to always ask for what you want or for the invitation or you know I don't want to say insert yourself in the situation, but always ask for the opportunity. People are not mind readers. People might not be thinking about what your best interest is, but never be afraid to ask always, whether it's an invite to a networking event or to be able to meet with someone, ask for an introduction, um, vocalize what you need. I think that's something that women don't tend to do as much. Um, and pump yourself up. Um, I think there's a lot that tears, I mean, not just for women, that's for everyone, but like be your own biggest cheerleader and remind yourself of all the badass stuff that you've done, like all the tangential stuff, all the main stuff. And, uh, and I think also really try to find a good support system, like mm. have those outside cheerleaders, like whether it's family, whether it's partners, whether it's friends, but like the people that will help you when you cannot be your own coach. I think that's important for everyone, but, um, yeah, that support system that thinks you're the best, that will always be cheering for you, that will encourage you when you're feeling a little bit of self-doubt. I think that's absolutely crucial. Right. No, that's a, that's a good answer. Tell uh, tell the people where they can find you, your podcast, all of the above. Oh, well, thank you. I'm at Julia Landauer at most uh, social media, and my podcast is If I'm Honest with Julia Landauer. And Gary, this was so much fun. Thank you. Great questions and for digging into more of the philosophical stuff because life's all about that and adjusting and growing so thank you so much for having me that's why i do it i appreciate you coming on thanks all right take care bye see you guys next week